A Dutch national Hang on. was. We're going to talk about Groningen Gas. Oh, oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Um, again, uh, Groningen seems to be neglected. It's Friday, January the 12th, and this is the Dutch News Podcast, your weekly chance to catch up with what's been going on here in the Netherlands. I'm Gordon Darish, Dutch News Contributing Editor and very chilled lottery winner, and with me today is Paul Peters, Master Student in Civil Engineering and New Year Fireworks Survivor. Did you win the lottery? Uh, I didn't really, know, unfortunately. Uh, in fact, I'd, well, I, I won the lottery in the sense that I won one euro because I didn't buy a ticket, or I don't know what they uh, cost these days, actually. It's been ages since I bought a lottery ticket. You didn't yeah. buy a lottery ticket, but you did manage to win a euro. Yeah, well, I won a euro by dint of not spending it on a lottery ticket. Oh, well, they so. are much more expensive now because uh, I I bought one uh, ah. for 30 euros, I think. Yeah. Uh, and I earned 10 euros. So, oh, um, so yeah. Yeah, you, yeah, so you only lost 20 euros. Exactly, yes. Pretty good. Yeah, but I'm, I'm, still, up, I'm still ahead of you, though. Exactly, yeah. But I had the infinitesimal, infinitesimally small chance of yeah. uh, becoming a multi, multi, multi millionaire. So yeah, which once I again had that thing going by. for me. Yeah, did you buy it in Wunsdrecht? Though that's the question. No, I should ah. have done that. Yes, you should. I, I, my parents come from Rosendal. That's very near Wunsdrecht. Ah. Um, so yeah, that was a missed opportunity. I bought mine in Nispen, though, which okay. is uh, even closer to Wunsdrecht than. Uh, uh, than Rosenau was but, yeah, uh, but yeah, not, still, not quite close I, enough yeah because of course this has been the talk enough. of Wunsdrecht all week because yeah. a 30 million euro winning ticket was bought in Wunsdrecht and the winner didn't oh. come forward and so there's oh really uh, yeah Initially, the wind didn't come forward, and there was um, uh, so the the the, the lottery organizer um, uh, put out a publicity campaign to try and find the lucky winner of this missing ticket. Uh, I think they sort of sent helicopters up. There were serious fears and worries that it might have been bought by someone from Belgium who'd uh, come over the border <laughs> for the day, which would have been you know some kind of national scandal, I guess. Um, yeah. Another opportunity, another reason to shut the borders as well. I think Akia Builders <laughs> will probably have raised this in Parliament, but uh, it turns out the lottery winner. Then the, the midway through last week uh, came forward, and according to the uh, the, the, the the prize organizer, he said he just wanted to wait for a week, just wanted to let it kind of settle. You know, he just uh, hung around uh, oh, and yeah. uh, just, uh, just just walked about, and then after about a week, he thought, "Yep, yeah, I think I'll go and claim claim my prize now," which I thought was very, uh, very really quite kind of uh, cool in the way. Because imagine if he's in Wunsdrecht and everyone is talking about this winning lottery ticket, and you've got it. Yeah. In the, what, what what's you know. How do you go about your day, just sort of pretending that it's not you and saying, "Oh yeah, I wonder who's won that"? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, the the Staatsloterij, which is by the way a government-owned lottery, yeah, um, they always do their best to find uh, the people who own the winning lottery tickets. Very yeah. often, they know where the where the winning ticket was bought and sometimes when nobody comes forward they hire like hire these uh, small planes with these banners yeah. uh, uh, behind them saying like saying stuff like um who won this ticket please yeah. come forward so they are really t always trying to do an effort uh, um yeah getting rid of all their money yeah that's the idea of somebody just waking up in the morning thinking yeah i'll get up today walk the dog 
Yes, for maybe go out for a cup of coffee. Will I cash in this thirty million lottery ticket? No, nah, <laughs> wait till tomorrow. It's fine. Wait till tomorrow. No yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I was out of the country for New Year. I was visiting my parents in the, in the UK, but you were here and you managed to survive the annual. Um, I don't know. Uh, the New Year fireworks uh, debacle. Barrage. Yes. Um, yeah, I did. Uh, I, I think I thought that it wasn't as uh, severe as it usually was. Uh, there, I mean, there were fireworks, of course, but uh, it didn't last well into the night. And also, what I uh, thought was also uh, kind of surprising that usually the week after New Year's Eve, you hear bangs uh, every night. And um, I didn't hear anything after that as well. So um, uh, it, it does look to be quieting down a little bit with with all the fireworks, even though um, the sales figures doesn't uh, doesn't seem to reflect that at all. Because I think there was an, again a record number of fireworks being sold in the Netherlands, and that doesn't even include um, the fireworks that were bought in Belgium and in uh, and in Germany. And there was a a uh, very nice story of a guy from Brabant who drove to to uh, Germany to get his uh, his car uh, yeah, filled with um, yeah fireworks that are illegal to buy here in the Netherlands and he mm. was driving over the Drenthe uh, rural areas uh, smoking a cigarette while he was uh, <laughs> having a a car full of fireworks and yeah. he 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 attempted to throw his cigarette out of the window but then uh. it blew back into his into his car <laughs> and the fireworks caught fire and yeah. That yeah. was the end of his car and his fireworks. And yeah. he was interviewed by RTL News, and he was asked, "Do do, do you have any regrets doing this? And um, is it do have you learned your lesson?" And he said, "No, not at all. My friend uh, is uh, as we speak on its way to to Germany again to to uh, yeah get a new supply of fireworks. So yeah, and a new supply of cigarettes. I guess uh, they, they, <laughs> he lost those as well. Lost everything. Yeah, I, I, I did uh, see this. There's a video of it, wasn't it? There? There's a video of the yeah. cast on the road with just these fireworks." Yeah going up out of the car it was quite a display yeah. actually I think it was quite <laughs> it I mean, if, display, if you're gonna yeah. if, you, if you're gonna total a car that's the way to do it I think with a big <laughs> box of fireworks shooting up through the roof yeah uh, unfortunately I was kind of surprised someone managed to uh, get this on video because it was in yeah. the middle of the countryside of Drenthe where yeah. typically nobody is of course because it's such a deserted place so see, uh, yeah, i've been to Drenthe. it's not that deserted they, they have okay. roads you know they have. okay yeah they have the hunibet <laughs> highway of course <laughs> enough about fireworks and new year's eve i think and about Drenthe. Um, we also have to make an uh, apology to our listeners of course because uh, we published the opf of the weeks uh, opf of the year special um, on January 1st um, and unfortunately for all the listeners uh, we had some technical difficulties mostly because of me I uh, put a dead link in uh, yeah. the description and that me- meant that regular listeners uh, weren't able to uh, to vote properly in the uh, election and uh, yeah, we want to give everyone a chance of uh, winning this uh, one of a kind uh, Dutch News mug of well, course. Do we, or are we just going to rig the vote uh, as usual? No, so. no, no. We are going to try. I mean <laughs> there is enough uh, uh, discussion about uh, 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 the rule of law and yeah. uh, the constitution. So let's keep this election for once uh, uh, fair. Clean. This might be the last yeah. fair election we will have in this country. Yeah, for and a long time. <laughs> for a very long time. So uh, um, we decided to uh, keep the vote open for an extra week. Uh, in the description of this episode, you will find a working link. And uh, yeah, please vote and uh, uh, get a chance of winning this uh, this special mug. 
Yeah, and the special episode is now open to everybody. So uh, yes, if you haven't listened to it already, to refresh your memory of um, of, of all the opus of the year that you will have forgotten within five minutes of hearing them, then uh, please listen to that. And then, uh, as Paul says, you can vote for your favorite. And while we still have to wait uh, a week longer to find out which OPEF uh, we can crown the OPEF of the year 2023, the new year kicked off with an absolutely extraordinary one. On Saturday, newspaper Algemeen Dagblad shocked Hollywood by revealing that in a secretly recorded audio tape, talk show host Khalid Kazem appeared to admit to Peter Erdevries that he had bribed an official of the public prosecution service. There's a lot to unpack here, but in a previous live, Khalid, who is now the host of one of the many, many, many live talk shows, <laughs> we have in this country uh, he was the senior partner of a law firm owned and founded by crime journalist Peter Erdevries and his son Royce the newspaper got hold of these secret audio tapes dating from 2019 and presumably recorded by Peter Erdevries himself during a private meeting between him his son and Kazem and one of the firm's clients had told Peter Erd that Kazem had promised to bribe an official in order to get an early release from probation and to this end uh, the criminal had given Kazem 8,000 euros, but after nothing happened, he suspected his lawyer uh, of putting the money in his own pockets, and uh, subsequently he reported this to Peter Erdevries, who happens to be his friend. Hmm. Um, shocked, father and son confronted Kazem with the accusation and asked right on the spot if he had either scammed his client or bribed an official. Kazem said he had definitely not scammed the client, so that leaves the other option. Hmm. That was an actual quote. Yeah. Um, he added that bribing was a common practice at uh, the previous firm he had worked for, and the three men ended the conversation by saying that every law firm has skeletons in their closet, and this incident is their first one, agreeing that it should never be repeated again. And both Kazem, Royce de Vries, and the other firm deny everything in the article. Together with the talk show's broadcaster, Kazem had decided to temporarily step down as the presenter of the talk show while the official investigation is ongoing. This isn't the first time questions were raised about Kazem's integrity. Right before his talk show started, the Public Prosecution Service launched an investigation into him, accusing him of leaking information to the criminal organization of Ridwan Tahi, who is widely suspected of uh, ordering the murder of Peter R. de Vries in 2020. So, yeah... Um, Painful story. Um, uh, uh, It must be said that Kazem was uh, uh, fully acquitted of all these allegations. Um, Yeah, they they investigated the previous claim, didn't they, about leaking information to Wiran Tahi, and uh, it was investigated by the disciplinary, the the, the legal profession's disciplinary body, and uh, they they decided, well, they decided there was was not enough evidence uh, to to prove that that he had done it. Um, So, his name was formally cleared. And he has also said explicitly in response to this story that he has never bribed an, a public official. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, even though, yeah, on, on this audio tape, um, yeah. he, he could clearly be heard. I mean, we didn't hear the audio tape, of course, but the Algemeen Dagblad published a full transcript, transcript of it and yeah. of their conversations. And uh, yeah, it's clear that he admitted to to, to bribing the official. So uh, yeah. yeah, we were we were a bit in doubt if this was, uh, we could count this as actual OPEF or news. Uh, we decided to uh, yeah count it as OPEF <laughs> in the end because it's uh, it's basically a um, yeah a media story right of, of celebrities. Yeah, it's kind of a Hilversum media bubble story, isn't it? And it's all about 
these incestuous links between the media, the public prosecution service, and the criminal underworld. And a small intriguing detail, I think, is that Kassem, uh, who is uh, in his uh, uh, late 40s now, uh, grew up in Newachain and actually went to school with Rido Antaki. Mm. So, yeah. um, obviously, he's uh, you know he's very close to that world, even if he's not actually part of it. Yeah, so, no, yeah, indeed. Yeah. And also, Peter de Vries was, of course, uh, a very recurring talk show guest on, the, on many of the talk show hosts. So, yeah, as you say, it is very incestuous, especially because uh, yeah. it is talk show world, lawyer world, and on the world. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's very complicated, but we will uh, have to wait and see what the official investigation uh, yeah, will end up uh, in and uh, if, if uh, Kazem can actually be charged with anything. Yeah, and of course, it's a huge spanner in the works for the Khalid and Sophie talk show because that was due to move to a 7 p.m. early evening time slot at the beginning of February, and they're now missing a presenter. So, yeah, Well, they were planned to be moved from the 7 p.m. time slot to the 11 p.m. time slot, so uh, huh. they were they were scheduled to be even more prominent than they are now. Yeah. And yeah, as you say, that uh, that leaves uh, problems for that show because, yeah, they, they, they lack a presenter. Yeah. Uh, and um, yeah, we will see what, uh, what will happen there. We will see what flavor of Cass Stengel they can uh, come up with. (laughs) (laughs) This week, the Coalition talks resume after the Christmas break with an escape to Swallow Mountain, which sounds like a very... Yeah, it sounds like a very strange uh, uh, adventure story. Inflation seems to be cooling off, but you won't notice it in the supermarkets. The Dutch get their skates on as temperatures drop, and we explain how a Dutch engineer single-handedly thwarted Iran's plans to build a nuclear bomb. Well, for a bit, anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God, Swallow Mountain. While the Tweede Kamer is still on Christmas recess, PVV-leader Geert Wilders, VVD-leader Dylan Jesselgus, NSC-leader Pieter Omzicht en BBB-leader Caroline van der Plas held a three-day-long sleepover party with de verkenner, former Labour minister Ronald Plasterk, at the Zwaluwenberg estate, Gordon Zwaluwenberg. You don't need to literally translate that name into English. No, but it just uh, sounds good in English, yeah, I thought. <laughs> no, it doesn't sound good in <laughs> no. at all. Um, at the Zwaluwenberg estate in Hilversum, the four parties are still holding uh, preliminary talks to see if they can actually start negotiating a coalition agreement. The most pressing issue is still the PVV's attitude to the rule of law and the constitutional rights of minorities, especially Muslims. Verkenner Plastek wrote in his first report that the four parties first need to agree on a common baseline to guarantee constitutional rights. This was widely criticized and especially placed uh, Pieter Omzicht in an awkward position because he had founded his party with the aim of restoring the rule of law and the respect for the constitution. During the election campaign, Geert Wilders presented himself as a new and milder version of himself and said that he and his party were ready to govern, and to that end he was willing to uh, place his most radical plans on ice. And not in a refrigerator, right? That's uh, that's no. a literal translation of what he said, but that's pr- that's not a, uh, uh, a idiom in English, right? No, or you say you put it in cold storage. I think that was mm. another the other phrase that was used uh, uh-huh. in, in the coverage, yeah. Um, that strategy worked because it led to a landslide win of 38 seats for his anti-immigration and anti-Islam party. And the question remains, can the other three parties trust Wilders, who has spent the past 25 years proposing one outrageous proposal after the other, to have suddenly changed character? Yeah, has the leopard changed his spots? That's the question. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, and the answer is uh, sort of contained in the question, uh, perhaps. But Wilders has gone further now, hasn't he? And he's in a, a kind of a, some what seems to be a conciliatory gesture. He began the week by abandoning 
some of these uh, radical proposals. Yes, on Monday he sent a letter to the newly elected Tweede Kamer chairman and PVV party member Martin Bosma um, that he was officially withdrawing three controversial pieces of draft legislation that were still on the parliamentary roll. Wilders never looked uh, too much in a hurry to uh, to get that passed, right? Mm. These were a proposal to ban expressions of Islam, including a ban on the Quran and Islamic schools, a plan to allow the IVD, the Dutch security service, to lock up potential jihadis or terrorists without a court order, and lastly a plan to deprive people with multiple nationalities the right to vote and exclude them from from public administrative positions. Uh, the three bills, when they were proposed, were slammed by uh, the uh, government's and parliament's highest advisory body, the Council of State, which described the bills as unacceptable and incompatible with the essential principles of the democratic constitutional state. BBB leader Caroline van der Plas welcomed the gesture on Twitter, saying that it was a nice step forward that fits with the promise uh, Wilders had made earlier. The leaders of the other two parties did not comment, uh, and that's something that we are going to have to get used to, given that the formation process has reached its radio silence stage, mm. where political leaders will say that they will cannot possibly comment uh, in order not to frustrate uh, the ongoing negotiations and talks. Yeah. So we have this. Yeah. So, so we have the radio silence, which uh, it, it, in itself, I think, says something about the progress of the talks and that they're that they're still going on. And there doesn't seem to be any obvious yeah. sign of an imminent breakdown because that's the point at which people do start breaking cover and uh, start because they're getting their excuses in first for why the talks have failed right so we i think we can safely assume that these talks are going to go on probably until early february which is ronald plastak's deadline for the next stage of reporting uh, but i mean just coming back to this move by wilders to drop these three pieces of legislation i mean these are three laws that had absolutely no chance of surviving the coalition talks i mean peter omzig would never have stood for them for one thing so it's, it's kind of in that sense an empty gesture but does it also put the ball in like Omzik's court to you know to keep the talks going because no one wants to be responsible for pulling the plug on the coalition negotiations? Yeah, I think so. Um, and uh, Geert Wilders had the um, yeah uh, implicit um, assignment, I guess, by Ronald Plasterk to uh, yeah uh, uh, give some sort of gesture, uh, give a sign of goodwill. And uh, Geert Wilders has listened to this. And uh, yeah, actually, the an hour before the meetings uh, started at the Zwaluweberg in Hilversum, he uh, he sent this letter to uh, to to Parliament. Mm. And yeah, it it does give Omzicht, of course, an excuse to say. Uh, he's not saying anything, but yeah, he could potentially say, yeah, Geert Wilders is uh, uh, showing uh, some goodwill and uh, yeah, he's uh, making concessions on his uh, unconstitutional behavior, I guess. And he is yeah. actually literally putting all his proposals on ice um, or actually withdrawing it. Um, and uh, yeah, that, that gives him an excuse to continue the talks, I guess. Yeah, and I suppose I mean, they, they released at the end of this uh, week where they were uh, locked up in uh, in the Svalbard. They did um, release a very short statement saying the talks had progressed in a good atmosphere, yeah. and also said they discussed a few issues, like I think healthcare was one. So I suggest they've gone beyond the stage of uh, talking about the constitution, which is a precondition for entering the next stage of talks, and actually started getting into the substance of the issues. That um, almost yeah. that almost suggests that they had concluded the talks on the constitutional uh, issues because. 
because uh, Plastek clearly said in his yeah. uh, report that this is the first hurdle we need to take and we need to agree on before we can actually start negotiating other issues. Um, he had listed a number of pressing issues, including healthcare, but he was very clear in his report. First, we need to get this uh, this common threshold uh, in place, and after that, we can start um, uh, negotiating the other issues. So yeah, yeah. The, it, it does suggest that they uh, have already progressed, but yeah, I can't imagine that they would do that without issuing a statement. So yeah, um, who knows what's happening there at, uh, at the Zwaluweberg uh, 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 estate. Yeah, it's all the classic uh, mystery and it is all the stage, you say, of, uh, of, of, of journalists standing outside a very heavy locked wooden door um, yeah. and not getting yeah, getting just uh, trickles of um, uh, yeah, of information but no real uh, and of course that does mean that things like Wilders uh, writing this letter to Parliament then becomes a huge news story because there's a bit of a news vacuum really so anything yeah. anything. anything that they chuck out into the arena is sort of pounced on analysed endlessly but uh, I yeah. sort of think this is to me this feels like there is progress but it's very little and very slow and uh, yeah we're only really going to find out um, in probably in about three or four weeks time if there's a real realistic realistic prospect um, of uh, these parties forming a coalition what he also thought was interesting is that um, uh, uh, by withdrawing these three proposals Wilders has many more on the parliamentary role by the way but these yeah. three are perhaps the most radical uh, 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 proposals but by withdrawing them and shining a light on what he has actually proposed in the past years uh it shows how radical his party is and how mm. far-reaching uh, he has been in the past. And um, yeah, it, it it almost reminds us of how terrible his party is. Yeah, um, so you forget that you know, this is this goes beyond. I mean, the, the, just the proposal to actually withdraw voting rights from people because they have dual nationality is actually pretty shocking. I mean, that's a yeah. basic fundamental democratic right. And you're taking away from people, not because they've got done committed any crime, which I think uh, even then, I think the threshold should be very high, but simply because you have a second passport. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so yes, yeah, so, so it's a reminder that uh, yeah, that, that uh, yeah, the PFF is uh, yeah, it, 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 it is a pretty far right party if we needed that. But uh, in other news, um, uh, we we have of course uh, still a caretaker government, and that seems to be falling apart as well because all the ministers are leaving for other jobs. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, there was there has been some reshuffling going on in the Christmas <laughs> break, and it all started. I think we reported on that in the last episode. We did. Uh, yeah, with the culture and media minister Gulai Uslu, who announced her resignation with immediate effect to become CEO of her brother's holiday airline. Um, not the uh, not the, the first job you expect from a D66 minister, but okay. Um, she was replaced by outgoing D66 MP Steven van Weyenbergen, but hardly three weeks into that job, he had already made a promotion. He is going to take over the finance ministry from the former part from his former party leader, Sigrid Kaag. On Boxing Day, uh, Sigrid Kaag accepted a job offer by the United States Secretary General to lead the UN's relief and rebuilding effort in Gaza. Is this more or less challenging than trying to put together a coalition government in the Netherlands at the moment, do you think? It is It is also a snake pit. It uh, is. Yeah. But at least the temperatures are better in Gaza, I guess, than at the Zwaluberg estate. Uh, yeah, I think this... I mean, um, 
Sigrid Kaag has a, had a long career in international diplomacy before she came to The Hague and uh, became a minister in Rutte's third cabinet, right? She led yeah. the efforts, the UN efforts to dismantle the chemical weapons of uh, Syria, for example, right? Mm. Um, and this is just a job that suits her much better than staying in Dutch politics. And Absolutely, yes. I mean, she, she in a previous uh, career, she, she's lived in Israel in the past, of course, in an Arab area of um, Jerusalem with with her Palestinian husband so she knows the territory pretty well you know yeah. she, she's not coming to this uh, as a complete unknown at all so yes I think you're right it, it is a job that uh, matches Sikhikar's uh, aspirations and career path yeah and it, yeah. it is a, pr a premature departure from from the cabinet because yeah, yeah as you said uh, it's, it's still in caretaker mode that means that uh, even though they cannot uh, propose uh, uh, yeah some some uh, uh, impactful legislation or anything. They, their job is to 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 yeah hold the seats warm for uh, a new cabinet to take over. And uh, they're still in office. And um, yeah, when ministers are leaving, it does mean that they are going um, yeah before their terms are over, basically. Yeah. Um, and the discussion here is, of course, um, should should can we expect ministers to uh, wait until this uh, potentially uh, uh, extremely long formation process is over, or do we allow them to uh, yeah look look around and to search for other jobs? I mean, yeah, some jobs are you understand better that someone can uh, will, will will take it. For example, uh, leading the relief uh, uh, and, and rebuilding of Gaza, for example, in mm. uh, in the name of the UN. But yeah, going to a yeah airline, even though it is your family. <laughs> business uh, yeah it seems a bit inappropriate and of course we had this wasn't even the last uh, resignation because earlier this week um, we heard from health minister Ernst Kuipers uh, he announced on Wednesday I believe that uh, he accepted a job abroad and he didn't even want to disclose what job it was I mean, <laughs> yes <laughs> And yeah, before the election, we had, of course, Wopke Hoekstra, who left uh, 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 Dutch politics. He was the foreign affairs minister and he went yeah. uh, to take over the uh, climate portfolio of the European Commission, which was yeah. vacant after Frans Timmermans. Well, actually, yeah, that, that I guess, was more understandable because it was actually a political move, wasn't it? I mean, the Dutch had to put forward a new candidate to replace Frans Timmermans and Mark Rutte was very keen to have Hoekstra taking the job. I think Kaag also wanted the job, of course. That was the other thing. It was course, a big rivalry yeah. between Hoekstra and Kaag. Yeah, Kaag as a D66 minister seemed a more natural fit in some ways for the climate portfolio. She didn't get it. Hoekstra took it. So he then left the cabinet. But yeah, that, that, that was more of a, of a logical or that wasn't such a surprising um, departure, I don't think, as um, uh, things like, yeah, Gunnar Oslo, as you say. So, yeah, yeah, even though, yeah, is this um, is this a great time for a foreign affairs minister to to leave? I yeah, mean, yeah, such a turbulent geopolitical time. I mean, yeah, it is. Uh, I have some problems with it. I I, yeah. I feel like yeah, it's an honorable job. You don't do it for the money. You do it for the good of the country. And yeah, just just uh, end your end your term. And uh, yeah, it's part of the job that you don't know when that can end. So no, yeah, yeah. just uh, take that into account. Yeah, and of course, there's all the whispers as well that Grutte himself is going to be um, yeah. uh, leaving uh, to uh, take over from Stoltenberg and NATO yeah. in the autumn. So that's another so yeah, that's another one to watch. Inflation cooled to 3.8% last year, but that figure barely even begins to tell the story. Um, while fuel costs dropped by 37% as gas prices recovered from the shock of the war in Ukraine, the average food bill went up by 12%. 
Bread was 15% more expensive. The price of olive oil rose by 21% and sugar mm. was up by 35%. And of course, that means lots of other items that have sugar in them uh, also go up in price. So you should notice a real, you will have noticed a big difference in your total food bill, I think. The statistics agency CBS said although inflation had come down from 2022's historic high of 10%, uh, the rate once you strip out fuel costs was still 6.5%. And of course, there's a whole uh, debate about the fact that CBS changed the whole way they calculate inflation because uh, to include new uh, ongoing energy contracts as well as new ones so that's kind of skewed the picture as well also of course the cost of going out for a meal or a drink that went up by 8.8% but the good news is that the so-called convenience generations that's everyone under about 45 have been keeping the food and drink catering sector going uh, because they still want to go out for meals or order meals in um, in the midst of their their, uh, busy lives according Mm -hmm. to the Dutch Food Service Institute FSIN, uh, young people spent 2,265 euros a year on going out on average, compared to a miserly 485 for stay-at-home baby boomers. Yeah, uh, they just need to get out more often, I think. Than... Yeah, and when they do, they should thank the, yeah, I think the younger generations for actually keeping these places open, because otherwise yeah. there'd be nowhere to go out to eat. So, so it appears, yeah. Yeah, so I, I'd like to thank you on a personal level, Paul, for this, uh, <laughs> uh, your, your contribution to the... <laughs> To, to, to the to, to nighttime economy. I had an uh, incident. <laughs> You're welcome. I had an incident at the supermarket uh, the other day. I right. um, was standing in line and the, the, the cashier scanned my groceries and uh, I saw the price at the end and I was kind of shocked by how high it was. But I thought, well, so be it. So I just paid it. Uh, but yeah, when I uh, when I came home, I checked the, uh, the receipt and it turned out that uh, she had actually scanned one of the more expensive items twice. Oh. Um, so that explained the 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 uh, shockingly high uh, uh, price I had to pay. But yeah, I I accepted it because I thought yeah this is it is it is plausible that my credit yeah, is the new normal expensive. now. This is just what things cost. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, speaking of uh, expensive stuff, uh, house prices uh, show no sign of uh, slowing down, right? No, there was uh, a lot of expectation. I think in the last year, the house prices were going to fall, and they did briefly dip uh, over the year up to about August. Uh, in real terms, it went down by 10%. In some monetary terms, it's about 5%. Uh, but they've started rising again over the last couple mm. of months. They're now back up uh, close to their record levels uh, of, uh, I think, sort of the end of 2022. According to the State Agents Association, NFAM, the median price increased by 5.3% during the last year, and more houses are being sold. So there's more competition in the market. And mm. people are starting to overbid in the most popular areas, especially. Uh, apartments are especially in demand. Uh, CBS official figures uh, for December aren't out yet, but we've seen a trend in previous months that uh, the um, decline, which was, as I say, about minus 5% over the summer, has slowed to less than 1%, and possibly in December it might have gone back into positive numbers. But that's not necessarily good news, according to research by Oxford Economics, who said the Dutch housing market is the most overpriced in Europe. <laughs> so we're getting, yeah, so worryingly back into, towards that situation we saw in sort of around about 2010, 2012 when the market overheated and we ended up with a sort of 20% drop 
in house prices over three or four yeah. years. Um, we don't want that again. Uh, mm. Even the state agents uh, are starting to sound a note of caution. They said confidence in the market is returning. Um, and as I said, uh, in more popular locations, people are overbidding. But uh, Lana Kaltzmitz-Kersen, who's chair of the NFAM's housing group, said it was a mistake to see this as a positive sign, given the exorbitant rises of recent years, uh, yeah. including, like I think, uh, the year before Corona, house prices went up by 20%. Um, yeah. They said it's a shame for first-time buyers. The market is getting getting ever more difficult to enter. So and it's yeah yeah, yeah terrible. And there's yeah. news of another group who are struggling to find a place to live. Yeah, there's been a rising trend has been noted in uh, uh, labor migrants, especially from Poland, uh, ending up on the streets. And the problems often begin when people who've moved to the Netherlands for work lose their jobs because quite often they've taken a package deal where their employer also arranges their accommodation. And so their house yeah. is tied to their job. And when they lose their job, they lose their house. And because house prices and rents are so high, they can't find anywhere else to live and they end up homeless. And uh, yeah, there are a couple of organizations that work with uh, homeless and vulnerable migrants. Uh, Stichting Baka said the problem had got worse since the pandemic because a lot of people then lost their jobs. They were unable to work, but of course they didn't qualify for state support because yeah. you have to have been working in the Netherlands for five years before you get the full um, you know, the full range of benefits. And so they end up out of pocket, basically penniless and destitute. And they also don't want to go back home because, um, well, partly because of the shame, the stigma of uh, you know, emigrating and then failing and coming back with your tail between mm. your legs, but also because inflation in Poland has been even higher than the Netherlands recently. Oh, wow. So it was you know, just wasn't affordable for them to go back and live there. The uh, Rechenbochup in Amsterdam said it was aware of 1,900 EU nationals living on the streets of the capital and it said there were many more people who were not on their radar so yeah hmm. but, uh, a real problem two days of public hearings in south africa's genocide case against israel opens at the international court of justice in the hague on thursday south africa asked uh, judges at the un's highest uh, judicial body to issue an emergency court order to stop israel's military campaign in gaza South Africa has accused Israel of breaching its obligations under the 1948 Genocide Convention, making it a crime to intentionally destroy a people based on their ethnicity, nationality or race. South Africa argues that by destroying Palestinians in Gaza, Israel is intentionally wiping out a part of the Palestinian community. Israel in turn calls the charges baseless and says South Africa is distorting reality. Uh, it will get to defend itself in court today when its own team of high-profile lawyers make that case. The case was widely reported in international media and attracted hundreds of journalists to the Peace Palace in The Hague. Dutch News's very own Molly Quell was also present at the hearings and we asked her what was said in the courtroom. Sorry about all of the uh, background noise. As you can tell, I am still outside the courthouse. Um, I think... The biggest kind of takeaway from today was pretty how pretty straightforward, legally speaking, this case is. Um, the question as to whether or not a country who's sort of not involved with the genocide could bring a case was already settled by the court um, in a earlier proceedings between Gambia and Myanmar. Gambia accused Myanmar of committing genocide against the Rohingya. Those proceedings are still ongoing. And so basically what we saw today was like kind of just pretty straightforward arguments about like what is the need for provisional measures. Um, South Africa wants the court to issue a series of nine kind of emergency orders sort of trying to stop the um, what they say is, you know, sort of like an ongoing um, genocide. So we saw a lot of that. Um, 
a lot of lawyers. There was some kind of uh, pretty extensive discussion of kind of incitement to commit genocide, as it is called. So basically, like Israeli politicians kind of saying very kind of inflammatory and violent stuff um, and sort of celebrating sort of the deaths of civilians or, you know, these quotes about human animals and these sorts of things. So that's kind of what we saw inside the courtroom today. Um, and the case also attracted hundreds of protesters outside uh, the Peace Palace. And uh, yeah, Molly had uh, this to say about the protests. Yeah, there were several hundred protesters kind of for both sides. Um, for anybody who's been to the Peace Palace in The Hague, you know that there's like a little sort of square area, a little plane um, in front of the court premises. Um, Pro-Israeli protesters were there today and the pro-Palestinian protesters were separated and put kind of further down the street. And for tomorrow, when we hear from Israel, that will switch. This was the sort of compromise. Um, it was pretty enthusiastic. There was a lot of shouting. You could kind of hear the protesters even from inside the court building. The police were out in full force. Um, as far as I know, there weren't like any particularly extreme incidents. Um, I didn't hear about that. I didn't. I didn't see any of that. Mostly, I think it was, you know, pretty. I guess as friendly. I guess uh, you know, sort of as it could be. Uh, I mean, it's fairly cold today, so maybe that maybe that sort of helped keep keep tempers to a reasonable temperature. So we will keep you updated on that story as it moves. Uh, I think uh, the, 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 obviously the, the, the case uh, this week has been about seeking effectively an injunction uh, uh, from the International Court, but the actual uh, debate on the merits of the case of genocide will go on for several months, if not years. These things uh, always take very long. I was surprised yeah. to, to see that uh, yeah, this, this case was brought forward so quickly because I always thought uh, the stuff at the ICJ uh, yeah, was... Uh, 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 always took a lot of time to uh, to to get into motion, but it does uh, yeah, substantial. This was, uh, the, the substantial hearings will do, but this is more yeah. like uh, yeah, what in Dutch is called a court reading or an injunction yeah. hearing, where they just want a quick resolution because they want the court to actually take action uh, to prevent things getting any worse than they already are. War, flooding, destitution and marathon speed skating, it can be a tough beat covering Dutch news and politics at times, but there is one glimmer of light and that's the continuing support of our generous patrons. Because it's thanks to your donations that we're able to keep dedicating the time to producing these podcasts and keeping you up to date with everything that's going on here in the Netherlands. To show our gratitude, we'd like to give new patrons a shout-out on the podcast and the chance to let us tackle your questions, if you have any. And of course, you also get exclusive access to our bonus content and an extra vote in the Op-Pef of the Year Awards, which, uh, thanks to our lack of technical expertise, are still open for another week. So if you sign up this week, you can get your two votes uh, to skew the outcome of that uh, election. We have four tiers of membership. Um, it's uh, in, entirely uh, up to you uh, what uh, level uh, you feel you are able or willing to support us uh, at. Uh, although the top tier, Gartegordel, does earn you yet another vote in the Op-Hef of the Year Awards. Yeah. Very important, uh, especially at this time. Yeah, especially now the, 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 the vote remains open for an extra week, of course. So get your chances. Yeah, yeah take your chance while it's, uh, while it's there. This week we say hello and welcome to two new patrons, uh, to Nuno and to Roland Gargani. Thank you very much uh, to both of you. Uh, Roland uh, uh, told us uh, he's living in Pittsburgh at the moment with his wife oh. and son, but they are making moves, they're making plans to move to The Hague in the summer uh, so that uh, his uh, son can start school in Middleburg. So good luck over the move, hope it all goes well. That must be the Roosevelt Academy, I think, I in believe, Middleburg. I then. believe yeah. that's, uh, it is, yeah, yeah. 
Um, so it does. Uh, it does allow if they if their parents are going to if his or her parents are going to live in the Hague. Uh, I think the the uh, the best way to drive to Middelburg is over the. Delta Works, uh, which ah. is uh, yeah the proud of the Netherlands, of yeah, course. Yeah, the pride of uh, Dutch engineering. Yes. N- yeah, definitely, and uh, especially during the, uh, the 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 winter storms we had seen uh, during the, the the Christmas break, they were all all these dams, these retractable dams, were closed and uh, kept our country safe. So this is yeah. definitely worth uh, worth driving very often to Middelburg to see this. Uh, uh, but perhaps we can do a a, a Patreon special on, uh, on on the Delta, on the Delta Works. Works. Welcome to think I'd be up for that. Things. That might be very yeah. good. Yeah, I, absolutely. I, I, like that too yes yeah okay <clears throat> yeah anyway uh, good luck with the movie roland and, and your family i hope it all goes well um but he also d- does say he's subscribed in order to listen to the bonus episode on hit builders and the pay fee fee so ah. yeah i'm not sure i would recommend you that as a first thing to do <laughs> when you're preparing for life in the netherlands but uh, very kind of you mm. to mention it um and uh, yeah, uh, and if you'd like to become a podcast subscriber and find out more about here builders or um, uh, major construction projects or more reputable characters like Video and Taki, log on to www.patreon.com/dutchnewsnl. In case you haven't noticed or you've been away in Spain for the last week, uh, it's been cold out. Temperatures have been below zero for most of the week, uh, dropping to minus ten overnight in some areas. But of course, whereas most people would sit around indoors drinking hot chocolate and waiting for it to warm up, the Dutch have been getting their skates on. Outdoor skating rinks have been springing up all over the country, uh, but the freeze wasn't quite long enough to allow people to get out on lakes and canals in most places. There have also been warnings not to go skating on flooded fields uh, following the heavy rain. Lots of places have been underwater, but of course as the waters recede, uh, the ice becomes unstable and it can crack when you go out on it. Um, because uh, but uh, the, 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 on Thursday the temperatures uh, rose again uh, the thaw set in so yeah the, the, the skating season was very brief and uh, seems to be over for the time being I'm proud to say that I uh, managed to uh, skate a half an hour on the ice on well the Thursday morning so where did uh, you go? Uh, I was in Rosendale near my parents. There was a they, they have a lake and it was uh, yeah well frozen I have to say. Uh, but we thought yeah we we looked at the we went there Wednesday evening. We saw some people ice skating, uh, but we thought uh, it was a bit too tricky to go in the ice. So uh, we um, went on Thursday morning. We um, uh, 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 it was freezing of course Wednesday night. So uh, that added a bit more extra ice. Yeah. And we uh, we uh, skated uh, first thing uh, after what was it uh, uh sunrise yeah sunrise yeah. is the word uh, yeah. so uh, i i managed to uh, to uh, spend uh, yeah uh, uh, 45 minutes or so in the ice and it was very nice very good well done yeah yeah there's great footage of um, uh, a, uh, a, a school janitor in Hilversum who who'd flooded the school playground overnight mm. deliberately he's got the hose out and they seem to do this regularly at this school you know in, in, and uh, he, so he got the um, yeah, he, he poured water all over the playgrounds waited 15 minutes for it to freeze then poured another layer and did this three or four times and then in the morning the children had a skating rink you think yeah. in any other country he would have been sacked for breaching health and safety <laughs> protocols right but in the Netherlands, this is what you do <laughs> yeah, when, it, exactly. when temperature, temperature drops well below zero. Yeah. <laughs> um, so after the floods and the freeze, uh, what's the weather got in store for us next week? Uh, more rain, basically, and mm. uh, black ice as well. Overnight, there were warnings <coughs> about uh, roads becoming very slippery because as it thawed gradually, it then refroze overnight uh, in inland areas. Uh, one person died, unfortunately, uh, mm. very sadly. Um, uh, there were code uh, code orange warnings in the southern provinces and the, the eastern provinces, Limburg, Nord-Brabant, uh, and uh, Overijssel and Gelderland. Uh, 
Um, the black ice is, uh, should have disappeared by now. This is, this is, this is Friday, um, and uh, over the next few days, the temperature is going to stay above uh, zero. So hopefully that hazard has uh, has passed. Um, but there is going to be um, more rain. Uh, um, thankfully, not as much as in the week after Christmas, when the water levels on the main rivers and also the Makamiya rose to alarmingly high levels. Uh, but yeah. thanks to the measures taken after the major inundations of the 1990s, uh, the flooding was fairly limited, uh, restricted to, I think, a suburb of Deventer and some rural areas in Overijssel, Gerland and a bit of Drenthe. That was a pretty, a very interesting project because until yeah, 20 years ago, the Dutch strategy was always to contain water as much as possible. And uh, 20 years ago, they figured, yeah, sometimes uh, uh, when when the when the water levels are so high, you need to give water space um, in order to prevent floodings in populated areas. And mm-hmm. uh, it cost billions of euros to 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 yeah to prepare the Dutch landscape for these sort of in, uh, 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 incidents. Um, but it works very well. Uh, because yeah, the the water levels were very high, and while we've seen major floodings in Belgium, in the UK as well, and in in in, in Germany, in the Netherlands, um, it was uh, yeah, w- we kept our feet dry uh, only yeah. in um, yeah very small portions. There were um, uh, some some minor floodings, and for example in Deventer, um, there were some emergency measures need to be taken in order to prevent the city from flooding. And we had of course the incident with a, a minor dam near Maastricht, which broke, and um, uh, that uh, uh, yeah enormous amounts of water rushed into a relatively quiet part of the Meuse River and one of the uh, houseboats uh, uh, got loose and it was drifted away uh, and it uh, uh, yeah, basically collided with a bridge, right? And yeah. um, the Dutch military needed to come into action to restore that minor dam because the 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 the, uh, the stream was so strong that uh, they couldn't uh, they couldn't save that that houseboat otherwise. So uh, yeah, th- those were also very impressive scenes to see these uh, 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 military helicopters basically building a dam. Yeah. <laughs> in 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 what was it one and a half days, right? <laughs> it was very impressive to see and uh, um, yeah, luckily. Yeah. Everything uh, seems to be working. Uh, yeah, it's very good. At you least said in the, this the, uh, in this it, regard. Yeah, the, 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 this this project that you mentioned. Uh, it's called the Ramte for the Rivieren, uh, yeah. just to give rivers space to breathe. Almost when they, when, when a lot of water comes down from the Alps, as it tends to at this time of year, um, it, it means, of course, that you, we only had a handful of these incidents, and that meant that the emergency response could cope with it. So, yeah, it is a very impressive uh, indication that the, the measures they took back then uh, uh, really are working. Um, so yes, uh, we're expecting temperatures uh, in the low digits for the next few weeks, uh, possibly night frost. There has been talk of a snow bomb um, in the middle of next week. One European weather model suggested uh, about 20 centimetres of snow, but uh, other forecasters sort of dismissed this and said you can't predict snow that far ahead to that degree of accuracy. <laughs> it might happen, but uh, more likely it'll come down as rain because it's not going to be cold enough. So just more drizzle, more Even more gloom. rain. Yeah. yeah, yeah. As if we hadn't had enough rain the past six <laughs> exactly, months or yeah. so it yeah. just feels like it has been subsequently raining for six months in a row but um, yeah. yeah we had two days of sunshine so uh, that was nice yeah well, it hasn't rained for a week now which is uh, yeah, mm-hmm. it was pretty good I mean I've had yeah the sun's come out and it's been cold and it's actually been quite nice 
the big freeze did mean that the gas taps in Groningen were turned back on, right? Yeah, there's a fair bit of uphef about this because three months ago, gas drilling officially ended in the northern province after half a century of uh, well, original of uh, both enormous uh, profits, but also increasing misery for the people living there because Groningen has been hit by more than 1,600 earthquakes since the 1980s, which have been linked to gas production, which has left 85,000 homes damaged and triggered a public inquiry and a huge compensation bill is still trickling through to households and just a general complete collapse of trust in the government and uh, yeah, its, it's willingness to uh, look after people living in uh, rural areas when uh, there's a huge lucrative source of income uh, underneath their homes. So when the government announced it was ending gas drilling last year, the overwhelming response was, uh, well, I'll believe it when I see it. So a lot of people's scepticism seemed to be confirmed on Tuesday when the mines minister, Hans Feilbrief, announced that production was being reopened at two locations for two days. The reason given for this was that the night temperatures were dropping below the critical level of minus six and a half degrees, which apparently means that gas supplies could not be guaranteed. Hmm. Susan Top, a gas victims campaigner who nowadays is an official in the provincial government, said she'd been led to believe the gas taps would only be reopened in the most extreme situations. While CDR group leader Rob De Witt uh, was more blunt, he said Kroninger's trust in the government was sub-zero. See what he did there. Yeah. Fairbrief said on Thursday production was being shut down again now that temperatures are rising and in October this year the gas product pipelines are due to be shut down permanently so they won't be able to do even this if uh, temperatures get really cold. Okay, we'll see. Yeah. They'll, they'll, they'll find a way. They'll find a way, yes. Yeah. <laughs> gas finds a way, doesn't it? <laughs> A uh, Dutch national was involved in a U.S. and Israeli-led mission to sabotage an Iranian nuclear complex in 2007 without the knowledge of the Dutch government, the Volkskrant reported on Monday. Zeeland-born Erik van Sabben played a crucial role in releasing a very advanced software virus known as Stuxnet into the system controlling a high-security underground nuclear facility in Natanz, that's a city uh, 300 kilometers south of Tehran. Uh, and it brought the Iranian nuclear program to a halt, apparently. Van Sadden, uh, who is a civil engineer by profession, died in a motorbike crash near his home in Dubai two years later. The paper has been investigating the sabotage campaign for two years and has spoken to dozens of people who were involved, including 19 people who work for the Dutch security service's IVD and the military security service MIVD. In 2019, the Volkskrant reported that the Netherlands had a key role in the sabotage campaign, but at the time the virus was thought to have been spread by an Iranian engineer. Stuxnet managed to destroy over a thousand ultra-centrifuges and delayed the Iranian nuclear program by several years. The virus did spread to computers worldwide and caused a major panic. In order to install the virus, US and Israeli security services needed someone physically present in the Iranian nuclear facility, which lacked any internet connection. And according to the Volkskrant, the CIA subsequently called in the help of the IFED, who brought them into contact with Van Sabben, who was married to, a, to an Iranian national and had emigrated to Iran. He had been recruited by the IVD as an agent in 2015. The government of the day, the fourth led by the CDA's uh, Jan-Peter Balkenende, wasn't informed that a Dutch national was the one who actually spread the virus, and nor was the parliamentary committee, which is briefed on security work, according to the Volkskrant. Uh, several MPs uh, have now called for an investigation into the paper's claim. Uh, the Stuxnet operation is also the subject of an NPO2 documentary series, which starts on Monday evening, and I am definitely going to watch that. 
that. Yeah, me too. Definitely. So it sounds very intriguing. Yeah, very, um, very intriguing indeed. It is, um, yeah, uh, um, another part of uh, yeah one of the IVD successes. Even though the IVD doesn't claim to be too much involved with it, but uh, the other one was, of course, um, the IVD preventing a group of Russian spies hacking into the uh, what was it the, oh, the, the it was the uh, Organization for the Prevention of Chemical Weapons yeah. in the Hague, right? Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, they they uh, they also uh, rolled up a uh, a Russian hacking group, right, which was uh, working yeah. from uh, from um, uh, from Moscow. So yeah. um, this is more of a uh, proactive intervention, right? It's more yeah. of a defensive move to protect uh, the 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 the, the, uh, the Netherlands' own state secrets. They so were actually trying to interfere with a, with another country, and of course the the fact that uh, seemingly the government uh, wasn't briefed on this at all, not even in secret behind closed doors. Yeah, it does raise some questions about the IFA days, uh, you know, yeah. accountability and going off on, um, you know, um, uh, d- 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 just going off on, 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 on missions uh, of, of, of their own volition. But uh, yeah, I guess from an engineering point of view, you've got to, you've got to, got to admire what uh, the, the guy managed to achieve. In uh, yeah. spreading this and virus so far and wide in the system, it's just, I don't know if it reminded me faintly of uh, the, uh, the, the. It's almost like the, the opposite of the story about the guy who um, uh, managed to uh, sell was it the, the Netherlands nuclear secrets to Israel? It's, uh, no, not to Israel. It was Israel, uh, it was right? a Pakistani. Pakistan, he he worked yeah, yeah. for a a, a <laughs> yeah very sleepy nuclear facility or or, or a research uh, uh, a, a company, I guess in. Almelo of all places, and he uh, just managed to 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 copy all sorts of nuclear technologies and secrets and smuggle. He he went to Pakistan every every four or five months or so to visit family. But in his briefcase, he had all these nuclear nuclear secrets, and yeah. that allowed Pakistan to develop its own nuclear uh, program and ultimately a nuclear weapon as well. And they sold it again to all sorts of other questionable um, uh, uh, regimes, including Sir- uh, including Iran. I have to yeah. say. So yeah. Um, um, yeah, in a way, this is this might be payback. It's kind of payback, uh, isn't it? Yeah, it's given by take, the yes. IFA day for uh, for for yeah, uh, allowing these nuclear secrets uh, to escape from from the Netherlands. Um, yeah, yeah. So uh, pay, paying off a moral debt. Yeah. Oh, so so every time you hear some nuclear test about uh, fr- coming from North Korea or. Or or Iran, um, yeah. You you get a orange, nice orange feeling, right? <laughs> nice orange pride, you could say. Yeah, yes, yeah. yeah. Speaking of uh, orange, uh, orange oh, pride. No, no, no. <laughs> this is Mark Overmars. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Orange disgrace. Yeah, that's better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sports news and Mark Overmars has been hit with a two-year ban from working in football by the sports governing body FIFA. Overmars, you'll remember, was uh, Ajax's director of football until two years ago when he admitted sexually harassing female members of staff. In at least one case, he sent a colleague an unsolicited intimate photograph of himself, better known as a dick pic. (laughs) The Dutch sports disciplinary body ISR suspended Overmars for two years at the end of last year after ruling he'd breached its code of conduct. But by then, the former Netherlands international midfielder was working across the border as a director of football at Belgian club Royal Antwerp. So the what, Dutch what did Royal asked, Club Antwerp say again when they hired him? Yeah, I think they said it was some water under the bridge, wasn't it? He'd learned his lesson, he'd moved on. And he fits our, uh, he fits our, our profile, norms and yes, values. Yeah. Yes. Fits our requirements, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, yeah, the Dutch FA then asked FIFA to extend the ban to all football leagues around the world, and uh, this week the governing body agreed. Uh, that was confirmed in an email to the NSA newspaper, who apparently got the news before uh, Overmars' employer. And now half the suspension is provisional, so that means Overmars can return to work after a year, provided he doesn't uh, reoffend. So provided he keeps his uh, mobile phone well away from his uh, <laughs> <laughs> from his trouser area, but it has forced him to step down immediately, right in the middle of the January transfer window which is one of the busiest times of year for directors of football because they're handling the sale and purchase of new players. Overmars could appeal against suspension to FIFA while sports law academic Marian Olfers said he may also have a case under Belgian labour laws depending on the terms of his contract. Hmm. And we mentioned uh, ice skating earlier did the uh, Dutch speed skaters manage to freeze out the competition at the European Championships? Yes they did indeed uh, the Dutch team claimed 22 out of the 42 medals oh. being handed out in Heerenveen at the TL Stadium. Uh, the women's team won gold in all seven of the disciplines they were competing in as well as a clean sweep in the 1500 metres led by Antoinette Rijpma de Jong. Marijke Groenwald took three golds in the 3000 metres, the mass start and the team pursuit. Jutta Leerdam won her third European title over 1,000 metres as well as silver in the 500 metres behind Famke Kok and the men took three gold medals as well with a 1-2-3 in the 1,000 metres led by uh, the pride of Torrente, Kjeld Naus. So uh, still some orange pride uh, yes, yeah. uh, after all. And there's also some good news for the Dutch man in tennis. Uh, Jesper de Jong, who's ranked 148th in the world, has made it to his first Grand Slam tournament after he came through the qualifiers mm. for the Australian Open. He beat the Argentinian Camilo Hugo Carabelli in the third qualifying round and his reward is a first round match against another Argentinian, Pedro Cachin. Uh, Botic van der Zalskulp, he takes on the world number four, Yannick Sinner, in a pretty tough opening round match. Uh, Talon Griekspoor is also there, and Arante Rus is the only Dutch woman in the singles draw. So four Dutch players in the singles. And hopefully for the English-speaking commentators, the Dutch will not uh, get <laughs> well, progressed too Van far. They'll be really exactly. crossing fingers for Yannick Sinner there. Yeah. yeah. And there's uh, also some football uh, again this week, right? Yeah, no doubt. You're thrilled to hear that the Eredivisie is returning from its uh, winter break. Yeah. Great. Ekese Valvijk and Heracles kick things off with a relegation battle on Friday evening. Third place Twente take on Azad Alkmaar, who are a point behind them in uh, fourth in what's probably the pick of the uh, weekend's matches on Saturday. And later on Saturday, PSV will hope to equal a league record by extending their 100% record to 17 matches. So half the season, I mean, they've won all their matches in the first half of the season. Uh, and whatever happens, they will be crowned winter champion uh, for being top mm. of the table midway through. Mm. Their nearest rivals, Feyenoord, are 10 points behind. They take on NAC Nijmegen at home. And Feyenoord uh, has lost uh, a few players to the African and Asian Cups as well. Yeah, these cut continental tournaments are going on so uh, yeah, the, the players are um, uh, yeah, no, because they are um, uh, competitive matches uh, the clubs are obliged to release their players to the national team squads uh, altogether 10 players from the Eredivisie are taking part in the, the two tournaments including Azek goalkeeper Matthew Ryan because Australia take part in the Asian Cup Mm. Um, and given they also take part in the Eurovision Song Contest uh, they seem to be having a bit of an identity crisis yeah, yeah <laughs> when it comes to continents yeah, yeah they've got to sort of fish around to see what continents will take them because yeah they, they don't really have much comp yeah, they, yeah, no, it's just them versus New Zealand otherwise and I guess it gets quite boring yeah. the four of the players who are missing from the Eredivisie are on the books at Feyenoord so they're sort of hardest hit including uh, Jan Kuba Minte of Gambia now his career nearly came to an untimely end this week when the team's plane had to make an emergency landing on the way to Ivory Coast 
post. Uh, did you see the footage of this on uh, uh, no? On but it sounds uh, was it was he was he was he on board of an Alaskan airline plane or not? Um, no, it wasn't Alaskan Airlines, but it was it was something. Uh, yeah, they're very very uh, dodgy. The, the, the players got on board the plane and uh, they noticed it was really hot on board. They were sweating. They were they were taking off from Gambia to on a three hour flight to go to uh, Ivory Coast, Cote d'Ivoire, which is where the African Cup is being held. Um, and uh, yeah, they noticed it was very hot on board, and the, uh, the the cabin staff said it's okay. Your air conditioning is not working. Mm. It'll be fine when we take off. And then they took off, and the air conditioning didn't start working, and neither did the oxygen supply, oh, which wow. is uh, a real problem. And uh, the players started feeling dizzy. Some of them actually fell asleep. Um, but fortunately, the pilots were able to land safely. Uh, one player, Saidi Yanko, who plays for Swiss club Young Boys, shared footage from the cabin on TikTok um, and said that uh, yeah, we were told the air conditioning would start working when we took off, but it didn't. Um, and yeah, fortunately, uh, the plane landed safely with all the players on board and uh, still breathing. Tom Sanfled, the Belgian coach of the Galbia team, said after landing that the flight was supposed to last for three hours. So if we'd flown on, we wouldn't be here yeah. now. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so frightening scenes uh, on the plane for uh, for the Gambian yeah. team. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, but fortunately, it seems that they did. They all recovered, didn't suffer any lasting effects, and uh, they will be. Um, yeah, they, they will be taking part in the in the matches in the next couple of weeks. That's all we have for you this week. This podcast is a production of Dutch News, which is, can be found online at dutchnews.nl. We'll include links to everything we've talked about today in the liner notes. You can get in touch with us by email to podcast.dutchnews.nl. And if you want to help us out, please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating. And you can also back us on Patreon at patreon.com slash dutchnewsnl and earn yourself a free shout out on the podcast. My thanks to Paul Peters. I'm Gordon Darroch and uh, Paul will be back next week with uh, Shanae Bosch. Us. Because on Boxer Day she boxing, accepted boxing, boxing, boxing. Day. Oh, not yeah. Boxer Day. No, um, it's not commemorating the Boxer Rebellion. <laughs> <laughs> I was, I was, I was, uh, I was considering to to put their second Christmas Day, but no. that wouldn't make sense to anyone, I think. No. Okay, but Boxer Day doesn't make sense. And, uh, Boxer Day also <laughs> makes no sense. No. <laughs>